But before we enter into Ezra 3 this morning, I, I, want, I want to invite you all to, to reflect on something with me, okay? Try to remember back to a time. Do you remember March 2020? COVID sweeping across the U.S. as it spread across the globe. Of course you do. That was a watershed moment that will always be in global history. Do you remember what April, May, and June 2020 felt like? It was tough. At first, it was cool. Woohoo! Off for weeks. <laughs> right? But then, days got heavier. Separation, isolation began to sink in, heavier and heavier. Then, for many, strange, disorienting feelings of identity. Meaning, purpose, starting to disintegrate in strange new ways. Yes, we as a church pivoted well, I believe. We did our best to stay connected, to worship God in an unprecedented situation for us. And worship God we did, who he remained faithful and good to us. Yet... Something was so different during those days. It just wasn't the same. What was missing? Then July 2020, if you were here with us at the time, then July 2020 came and we began to gather outside. Hallelujah. We were back. It was good. And yet, something was still not complete. What was missing? For myself, it was probably around mid-fall 2020 that I started to feel spiritually full again. And even that was a progressive fulfillment over the course of the next year. What happened? Yeah, okay, COVID, I get it. But what was missing in my soul? I had the Lord, had my family, had his word. But you, I didn't have all of you with me in life and worship in, in our fruitful rhythms of life and worship together. All of you, all of a sudden, became vital for my spiritual health in a very tangible way. And I have a feeling I am not the only one who had an experience like this. I know my wife shared the same experience. Our family, we were great. We just had Selena, our youngest, right before COVID. So there was actually some special bonding that I, th th these times, these months of, of spending time with her and as a family, that was really nice. And yet, 
we were incomplete. We longed for you, all of you. Now, that experience that you can all identify with to a certain degree, the hardest days of it lasted anywhere between, say, four and nine months, maybe even longer for others. Now, can you imagine a similar kind of physical, spiritual separation, isolation, disruption of fellowship and worship, disorientation of identity and purpose, but for 70 years. This is real. That was the experience of the people of God in Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Though far more intense of a disruption because they were conquered, taken to and scattered throughout a whole new land to figure out how to endure now. So what we've seen is Ezra 1 and 2 provides this great sense of relief and comfort after 70 years. We're going back together. God is with us. He is faithful. We can only imagine what that replenishment of their souls was like for them after 70 years. Last week, Brian helped us see in Ezra 2 the importance of the list of those who returned in response to the stirring of the Lord that we saw in chapter 1. Ezra 1 and 2 form a cohesive unit. Brian handled that text well, huh? And no, Brian, I did not pawn that tough text off on you. I'm simply strengthening an age-old leadership practice in my new role. It's called delegation. (laughs) Just doing my job. And I'm truly grateful for you, brother. Thank you for helping us reflect on the effect of God's faithfulness motivating our faithfulness in how we respond to him. It was a good word. I'm excited to have Brian come back next week as well to be preaching in Ezra 4. Davi and I will be away in Germany. We leave on Tuesday, just her and I, for Germany. So afterward, if you see me keeping my distance to a certain degree, it's because we're both in this place like, could it possibly be just the both of us going to Germany? We have two girls. And so uh, we're very excited to be going away to a wedding in Germany Uh, for a week. But I'm also excited to have Brian come back and and preach with us in Ezra 4 next week. Thank you again for that word last week. Now, family, here we are, Ezra 3. The people of God who returned are back in their promised land together. The question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, what are they going to do now? They have no homes, Their land has been a wasteland for 70 years after being destroyed. Where will they begin? Let's pray, and then we'll read Ezra 3. And for those who are receiving Bibles and uh, are unfamiliar with the layout of books, Ezra comes before Psalms in the Old Testament. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll enter into Ezra 3. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your goodness. Thank you for preserving this time for fellowship and worship. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for your word. Lord, this last week we, we see the effect of natural disaster in Florida to human disaster and brokenness in Indonesia with stampeding yesterday. Lord, and everything in between all across the globe, the war in Ukraine, have mercy, Lord. Be with us all across the world. We pray for our family. We pray that the light of the hope of the gospel would shine brightly this day and in the days ahead in these, in these places of hardship. And Lord, today as we sit and gather in peace, we pray that you would take your word and bring it to life in our hearts and our minds. Lord, fill us with light and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read Ezra chapter 3, first four verses. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 1 through 3. So, a leap in time. Seven months, maybe a bit more they've been there. One thing we're going to see in this book is that the narrator is not so much concerned with chronological sequence as much as he is theological significance. There's chronological sequence throughout the book at large, for sure, but you'll see what I mean. His focus in how he composes these books, this, this book, Ezra Nehemiah, is to highlight things that are of theological value and significance for us. The seventh month of the Hebrew calendar is the most important time of year for the people of God in the Old Testament. You know when that is? It's not July. It's right now. As a matter of late, late September, early October. As a matter of fact, today we sit in the most important week of the Hebrew year. Last week started Rosh, was Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. This upcoming Tuesday is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then next Sunday for the following week is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar. This was right after the harvest season. All crops were brought in and harvested. There was much to celebrate in view of God's faithfulness and provision. So the seventh month arrives and all the people gather in Jerusalem as one man. First verse highlights. That's important. 
Remember from Ezra 1, the main character of this story is the people of God as a united community. The narrator is emphasizing their solidarity right here. Then, out of the people, Jeshua and Zerubbabel emerge as what appears to be leaders of some sort. Now, Later, what we'll discover is that Jeshua is actually the high priest and Zerubbabel is the appointed governor over Judah. But here they are one with the people and with a band of brothers, they build the altar of God. This this is the first thing that scripture records they did together was build the altar on its foundation, as it was written in the law of Moses. This is major. All throughout Israel's history, the altar was the only place where Jews could go to meet God and where they would find forgiveness for their sins in order to maintain communion with God. Remember from Ezra 1, two weeks ago, we highlighted what God said in in Deuteronomy 12, 5. There in Jerusalem is where I will set my name and where I will dwell. And it is there that you will make your sacrifices and offerings. This altar that they build is on the foundation of the pre-exilic altar, the altar that existed before their destruction, before their 70 years in exile, which also sits on its foundation on the same spot, Mount Moriah, where Abraham, years and years and years ago, was called to sacrifice his son back in Genesis before God provided a sacrifice in his place. Same spot as it is written in the law of Moses, it says. So one thing becomes very clear from the start. This new community centers themselves around God's word. We're going to see this. This is a major theme in Ezra and Nehemiah. And here, this is the first time we see this since their destruction. Now, hopefully to help out, I have a couple illustrations to take a look at what this may have looked like, a bird's eye view of of their return. Right here, we have uh, in in the solid green, this is about the the fullness of the area that was inhabited by, by the Judeans before their destruction, before their exile. All the dotted line was, was what the former uh, walls around the city looked like. And then here, with, this, with the striped green and gray, if you can see that, this is about the, the area that was inhabited after the exile, after the, the, the 45, 50,000 people return or so. We, we have this area is about where they, where they inhabited. And this is the Temple Mount, the top of Mount Moriah. This is the temple that we'll, we'll get to in the, as the book. And look, this little orange thing right in front of it. That's the altar. Let's move to the next. Let's zoom in a little bit. Move to the next slide. This is 
something of what it may have looked like to give you an idea of the placement of the altar in front of what would become, what they're working toward as, as the, the start of the rebuilding of, of the second temple in the same place. So this is what we're talking about here that they just built. First, first task together since they got back. And we can, we can move back to, to the text now. Now, on the altar, it says they made burnt offerings morning and evening. These instructions are laid out in Leviticus 1 in the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. The purpose of these burnt offerings was to receive God's mercy for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to present male animals whether a bull, a lamb, a goat, or a bird, depending on what, what, what you're able to, to afford. They had to pre present male animals that were unblemished. They were spotless. They had to be perfect. And the people would lay their hands on the, head, on the animal's head and then offer the whole thing to be burnt up in their place on the altar. Okay, this is different than some of the other offerings and sacrifices where some parts would be kept, some parts would be cooked and left behind to be eaten, some parts would be boiled. In a, with a burnt offering, the whole animal had to be given and burnt in their place. And what this, what this, what this indicated, what this symbolized was in so doing, their sins would be forgiven. They would be covered by the death of the animal in their place. Now, this was the sacrificial system that was in place to satisfy the penalty for sin, which is death, as we saw all the way back from the beginning of our Bible in Genesis 3, at the first rebellion and disobedience of God, Adam and Eve, in the garden. So, here we have their first work together since they get back. And they continued to, 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 to burn these burnt offerings day and night. But what surprises us is that the, the narrator highlights they built the altar and began offering sacrifices for they were terrified of the peoples of the lands. Hmm. First sign of conflict. And we're not sure exactly why they feared these people. Maybe they were different. Maybe they were hostile. Maybe they had a different agenda than God's people. We don't know yet. But the people of God feared them for some reason. So we can only assume that at some point they encountered these people around them and were intimidated by them. Now, what's important to note here is what they did in response to the fear of the peoples of the land. They sought the Lord. They sought his presence. They gave themselves to God. They sought their cleansing. They worshiped together. Isn't that something? They didn't retreat out to the desert in fear. 
They didn't go out to fight the peoples of the land. They didn't seek wisdom from the wise ones and the diviners to to learn how to, to defend themselves. They sought God in worship together. They knew that in prioritizing worship, they would persevere well. In prioritizing worship, they would persevere well. It's interesting. Might there be something here for us Christians, God's people today? Do we have any fears of the peoples of our land? How do we interpret those fears? What do we do with those fears? Where do we go to seek wisdom and persevere through these fears? My fear is that too many of us start with YouTube or our news outlets, our social media outlets, our favorite commentators, our favorite podcasts to equip ourselves to navigate through adversity as Christians in our land. For those who start here, I would ask, well, are you at peace now? Are you confident and secure now? When do we seek God over these matters? When do we seek, what does it look like to seek God together over these matters? In his word, in his wisdom, in prayer, in humility before God and each other. Some food for thought. Let's read on. The people gather together, they build an altar, make sacrifices, and then let's read verses 4 through 7. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, nice. So they get back, they build the altar, they seek the Lord, and they party. They celebrated. The Feast of Booths, as it is written again, and continued to offer sacrifices according to the ordinances, celebrating all their feasts together. We'll continue to see the community of God reform themselves around God's word. God's word is central to their communal life. And this is great. 
Jews still observe this today, though very differently now. It's called Sukkot. Like I just said, it begins next Sunday, the 9th, and goes for a week. This word, Sukkot, just means booths or tabernacles. Now, back then, they didn't set up diner tables with booths out in the land as we might understand it today. Honestly, that's the vision that I had. I remember when I first saw a feast of booths, I was like, okay, what is going on here? It's a little weird, but cool, I guess. They're, they seem to be having fun. It's, it's not the same. No, these are tents. A booth is a tabernacle, is a tent. This feast was inaugurated after God delivered his people from captivity in the Exodus and served to celebrate God's faithfulness. And they would remember his presence and provision for them from generation to generation. This is, this is recorded and laid out in, in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16. I'll give you a snapshot of what, what this looked like the first time around. So this is a scene, I think Kevin took this from his drone of the Israelites, if I'm not, no? This is, this is from, this is, this is the start. This is the time of the Exodus after being led out of, out of captivity. They're in the wilderness. God forms them as a people. And as you can see, the tents. This is, the, this is how the people are dwelling. This is the first, this is the first tabernacle here. Look, there's the altar, same, same construction that, that, that is being developed over time. And, and this is what they're celebrating. So this is the first. And what's important to, to note here is that this is also the first time in, in, in redemptive history, in, in Israel's story, that God comes down and dwells with his people. And so here we are. We can go back to the text now just as a snapshot, something to keep in, in view as that's the original. Um, here we are years later, and they're celebrating this feast, this feast to commemorate this time in Israel's history when they're in the wilderness living in tents. They probably weren't that nice, the tents. But, like, but, but that's what they're doing here in Ezra Nehemiah's time. So what they would do during this time is in Ezra Nehemiah's day is... What they would do is they would leave their homes, okay? So they had their homes, but then they would, they would leave their homes for one week and, and they would construct huts built, out of, uh, built with branches and leaves and all the people would live in these little hut tent-like tabernacles for a whole week. The kids must have loved it. This was a week of great celebration. I wonder if any of them were glamping. You know what glamping is, no? It's a newer kind of, I think it's an American thing. It's kind of embarrassing. It's a new, a new category for, for, for camping, glamorous camping, glamping. I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of embarrassing. I wonder what they would have thought of glamping. Let's move on. I digress. So where, where are we? This is a great celebration. They did this in order to tangibly identify with the people, with their people of the Exodus. By doing this every year, they would retell the story live of the Exodus year after year. And they would celebrate God's faithfulness, his provision from the harvest season. And they would rejoice all week. Now, Something really important to note here, they're not only celebrating, 
God's deliverance of his people back then, but right now. They have their own redemptive story. They're living in a new kind of exodus. What a celebration this must have been. Also important to notice are all the ways that they are keeping with the feasts, the festivals, and offerings of God's law prescribed for them. They're reestablishing rhythms of worship, patterns for their spiritual life together. This is important, family. It's vital. God ordained these patterns of worship and celebration for a purpose, to keep them, to reinforce for them their identity as God's people, their role in the world, to be a light to the nations of God's salvation. They needed these patterns of worship. Without disciplined rhythms to keep their spiritual life vibrant and faithful, they were bound to disintegrate. They needed it. Now, notice something else here in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Remember from Ezra 1, their main task, to return and rebuild the house of the Lord. Here, the narrator feels it important to highlight they took the week off to celebrate, go camping, before the foundation of the temple was laid. Think about this carefully now. Can you imagine the amount of work they had to do? They're coming back to a rubble pit. They had to rebuild homes for themselves. They had to keep cultivating this, this new ground of crops for crops. They had to rebuild their whole lives. This land lay desolate for 70 years. It was a wasteland. Not to mention, the whole reason they came back was to rebuild the temple. They had to gather all the supplies and all the work in preparation to rebuild. That was a snapshot of their to-do list, to name a few of these items. And what did they do first? They worshiped. They worshiped God. They celebrated the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Family, they knew that their call from God to return and rebuild was intended not only for structural renewal in rebuilding the temple, but also spiritual renewal in rebuilding themselves as a community, as God's holy people. Worship had to come before the work. And this is an important theological theme here for us. In God's family, worship comes before work. Worship precedes work and is the very goal of our work. Joy 
in God. Our joy in God is the very fuel for our work. And we find joy in God through spending time with him and each other. It's through our rhythms of spiritual life that we keep ourselves close to God and each other and filled with his joy. Rhythms of our spiritual life, time in prayer, in his word, in song, to be with others at church. Consider our ways, family. Do we seek the joy of the Lord as our strength and motivation in life? His joy for our work? His joy for our life and ministry together? Do you plan rhythms of worship into your lives to nourish your relationship with God and others? Now, to clarify, when I say worship, I'm not referring to singing together. Though singing together, worship in song, is certainly part of worship. But biblical worship is far more comprehensive. By worship, I mean the act of ascribing ultimate value to something so much so that it transforms you. In our case, when I say we worship God, I mean that we ascribe ultimate value to God. We revere him in awe and wonder for who he is and what he's done. And therefore, we prioritize our lives around knowing him and making him known. Family, we all worship. The question we need to ask ourselves is what or who do we worship? We all ascribe value to people and things. And some things are given so much value that our lives revolve around them. These things will have control over your life in varying degrees. We become what we behold. We reflect what we revere. What do you worship? What takes priority in your life, in your mind? What do you think about most? What do you listen to? What motivates you? What, are your, what do your daily rhythms revolve around? What are they toward? As Christians, our worship should consist of giving our whole selves to God in response to his goodness and faithfulness to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, 
present your whole selves as a, to God as a holy and pleasing sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. Pray for discernment, family, to identify the areas in our lives in which we worship other things. I would encourage you to set disciplined goals toward the end of forming healthy habits and rhythms that lead us to prioritizing God in our lives. With the goal in mind, we need to trust that in doing so, we will be filled with increasing joy. And we will have the strength and endurance, to the power to persevere well in this life, individually and together. Amen? It's not easy to follow God faithfully, is it? We need set rhythms to our spiritual lives together. Consider this. If we don't have them, well, we too are bound to disintegrate. This is the whole reason, family, why we meet like clockwork as a gathered assembly every week, why our service orders and worship flow in a similar manner week after week. This is why we have designated prayer times Monday night before the services on Sunday morning. This is why we have small groups that, that gather regularly throughout the week, why we have Sunday school week in and week out before, uh, during the first service. This is why we have kids clubs and, and, and youth group and all our adult ministries that all serve to keep us in community, seeking God together, and growing in our spiritual life together. These are our rhythms of worship. When we prioritize worship, we persevere well. So, the people gather together, they build the altar, they worship in feasting and celebration with joy, they give themselves to God, as well as their offerings and then we see in verse 7, these offerings are used to hire workers from Lebanon and purchase supplies from them all to rebuild the foundation. It's important to note what's going on here. They're following the same steps as King David and Solomon before them as they prepared to build the first temple hiring masons and carpenters from Sidon and Tyr to bring cedar from Lebanon. They're keeping in continuity with the people of God before them. They're reliving the story. The difference here, however, is that where David and Solomon primarily funded the work of building the first temple, here... The narrator makes, the narrator makes clear it's the congregation of people who all contribute to the work in giving their offerings. It's a united work driven by worship. Let's read on verses 8 through 11. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, 
and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons and the brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In the second month of the second year, this is the same spring month which Solomon began building the first temple. Here the narrator makes clear all the people who returned from captivity participated in the rebuilding. All. Doesn't say exactly what their roles were. I'm sure they varied, but they all participated. The Levites that's the tribe of God. That's the tribe God designated to be the priests over his people. They oversaw the work. This was so that they would make sure that they kept in step with the law of Moses, recorded in the Torah, first five books of our Bible. And with everyone's participation, phase one is accomplished. The foundation was laid. Small beginning. But nonetheless, progress. So what do they do? They worship. They celebrate. They love to celebrate. And I love how the narrator describes this. I like this guy. We have a lot in common, I see. He says, they all came together, laid the foundation, but then, then, the priests came out in all their apparel with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals to praise the Lord. They sang, praising and giving thanks, saying, For he is good. His loving kindness toward Israel endures forever. And they all shouted with loud shouts, praising the Lord. For the foundation was laid. The focus on worship is made clear. They worship before, during, and after every stage of progress. Worship, worship, worship. When we prioritize worship, we persevere well. We starting to see that? The narrator gives Minor attention to the work on the foundation, interesting, the, the work itself, but major attention to the celebration. The celebration itself here is a detailed reliving of celebrations in former times, both when David brings the ark into Jerusalem and at the completion of the first temple by Solomon. Both these events also represented God's presence with his people. Now the song recorded for us is key 
They praised the Lord, saying, For he is good. His loving kindness upon Israel endures forever. This is a phrase that we see all over the Psalms. We recited it in Psalm 107 this morning, as well as we see throughout the Old Testament that was sung at high points in Israel's history, just like the two that I just mentioned. The word to focus on here is loving kindness. Some translations say his steadfast love. This is one of the most precious words in all the Bible. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, if you must know, which represents God's covenantal love and faithfulness to his people. His loving faithfulness endures forever for his people. It's a promise. Hear those words and take that warm blanket and wrap yourselves around it, wrap it around yourselves tightly in this frigid world. We need it. God is faithful, always has been, always will be. The people see this, they know this, they are living this, and so they worship. Hallelujah. Let's close out the chapter now here, reading the final two verses, 12 and 13. But I'm going to start back in halfway through 11, okay? And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Huh? Well, that's pretty anticlimactic. I thought they were all happy. I guess not. Many were crying weeping so loud that you couldn't distinguish the sounds of joy from sadness? What was so disappointing? That it wasn't the same? That it wasn't as grand or as nice? But they're back. God protected them and restored them back together again. What was missing? Why aren't they all fulfilled? Family, what we see here is a tension 
that can be observed all throughout the Old Testament. Promise, promises fulfilled and yet not fully. It isn't until 500 years later when we would see true completion come into effect. When God would come down and tabernacle among us in the form of man, the word made flesh and he dwelt among us, Jesus, the promised savior who said, I am the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. Come to me, all you who are hungry and thirsty, and you will be filled. If you eat of this bread, you will have eternal life. And the bread that I speak of is my body. Feast on me. Jesus, who said, I am the gate to the pasture. He who enters through the gate will be saved. I am the one who lays down my life for my sheep. No one takes my life from me. Rather, I lay it down of my own accord, and I will raise it up. He is the one who, when John the Baptist sees, declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He is the great high priest who gave his life fully as the great and final sacrifice on the altar of the cross in our place. He who was sinless took our sin upon himself so that we would receive the forgiveness of sin by faith and, have, and be reconciled back to God. Jesus is the one who stood in the second temple at Passover and said, this temple will be destroyed and in three days I will raise it up. And at his resurrection, after his death, three days later, this all made sense. Jesus was the true temple of God, where the fullness of God dwells. He is the place where we go to seek God and be cleansed of our sin. We are covered by his blood, the true, unblemished, sacrificial lamb of God. He fulfills the altar, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, and it is in him that we feast and celebrate in joy together forever. Amen? No one but God can write a living story like this. It's amazing. It is fitting now for us together to feast on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the ushers to pass out, to walk around with, uh, with elements for those who didn't grab it on your way in. They'll be coming around. 
This is an act of worship for believers in Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus yet and are not following him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, we ask that you would, would, would let these elements pass, but consider the connection and the significance of this act of worship in view of what we just heard. Family, as we participate in the Lord's Supper together, this is really important. We remember this is the feast of new covenant people. We no longer dwell in physical tabernacles for a week to remember God's faithfulness. We follow Jesus' instructions given on the night that he was betrayed at his last supper. This is the new ordinance of God that we keep in order to remember him together. When we take these physical elements, we feast on spiritual realities. The salvation of God for us through the person and work of Jesus. We remember him. As we participate in communion, we demonstrate our union and communion with God, with each other, and with all the people of God throughout history. When we take these elements today and every month, we declare that we stand united with Jesus and his disciples, with Zerubbabel and Ezra Nehemiah, with Solomon and David, with Moses, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And all those who love God and worshiped him. Isn't that cool? He keeps us. And with one voice we say, you are God. We are your people. Thank you. You are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We have a salvation story too. We're living in it. Amen? Let's spend some time now, just a moment, in prayer and quiet reflection, coming to Jesus for mercy and grace and giving ourselves to him in praise and thanksgiving. And then I'll pray and we'll take the elements together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for giving yourself on our behalf on the cross. Thank you for your unceasing love toward us. Lord, keep our hearts from worshiping that which is vain and revive us in your word. Establish your word in us, your servants. 
and that which produces reverence for you. We love you and we give you thanks for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's take the bread. This bread symbolizes Jesus' body broken in our place. Let's take the bread together. This cup symbolizes the new covenant purchased for us in Jesus' blood in our place. Let's drink of the cup together. Amen. Peter tells us that Jesus, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament tells us, Jesus is the cornerstone, our foundation. And all of us believers, each as living stones, together we compose Jesus' living body, his living temple. We are his chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? This is who we are, God's people. We are Christians. This is what we do. We shine as lights in the world to God's salvation in Christ Jesus. We are complete together in him. And so we will live our lives in worship. Amen? Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a wonderful day. Today we have a connecting event. There's food out there. Be sure to fellowship and get to know others. Worship together. Worship with pumpkin pie and pumpkin donuts and fellowship. Enjoy the day. Lord bless you all. Ha, ha, ha.